Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Carter Nerds. Thanks so much for joining us for this powerful narrative session where we will hear all about interventional cardiology, cardio obstetrics, and work-life integration with Dr. Key Park. Of course, we would like to thank Dr. Katie Burlacher and Dr. Noshin Riza for their amazing mentorship in this narratives project, as well as Dr. Pamela Douglas for inspiring us to create the narrative series in the first place. But before we get ahead of ourselves, I'd like to introduce student Dr. Shivani Reddy, who joined our family as a Cardianerts intern. The Cardianerts Academy expanded to include medical students to both help support podcast production and continue advancing digital medical education with the mission to pair content creation with personal and professional development. Shivani, we are so grateful to have you as part of Cardinerds. Would you please tell the audience a little bit about yourself and what being a part of the Cardinerds team has been like for you? Thank you so much, Dan, and hello to all of the Cardinerds. I'm Shivani Reddy, the newest Cardinerds Academy intern representing House Tossig. I was born in India and raised there for about half of my life, after which I moved to California, where I completed my secondary education through undergraduate studies, which was at UC Davis, so go Aggies. Currently, I'm a second-year medical student at the Western Michigan University. University, Homer Stryker, MD School of Medicine, also known as WMED. I also serve as one of the ambassadors of the ACC Medical Student Leadership Group. In my free time, I enjoy tutoring high school students, cooking experimentally, and ideating mobile app-based solutions. As for the future, I envision my career to be an amalgamation of my interests in cardiology, medical education, and digital health. Coming to talking about being a cardio nerds intern, I must start by saying that this is such a tremendous opportunity and I can't thank Dan, you, and Amit enough for it. It truly is such a privilege to be one of the first audience who gets to listen to such fascinating discussions from experts you know, from around the country and just glean as much knowledge and wisdom as possible. Wow, Shivani, that is very impressive. When I was a medical student, I think all I was focusing on was learning the content for the exams and, of course, patient care and what I'm having for lunch that day. So this is incredibly impressive to see your very wide perspective and you've done such great things, including this episode, which was made possible by your amazing audio editing. As a medical student, what do you think are some of the takeaways that we can get from this episode? Yeah, so this episode featuring Dr. Park is certainly very special since it's the first episode that I got to work on. And, you know, after finishing up the episode, I was just filled with such a sense of awe and admiration for Dr. Park and all of the incredible work that has gone into bringing cardio OB to the forefront. And I also appreciate how Dr. Park shares with us such amazing insight and advice into how we can continue to move the needle forward and really bring lasting change in the care of women. Additionally, it was really great to hear Dr. Park's personal story, as well as her perspectives on work-life integration and empowerment imposter syndrome, which are such important topics for everyone, including practicing physicians and students like myself. Wow, Shivani, that's incredible insight. And we should definitely get right to the episode. So why don't you hit us with the usual disclaimers and plugs? Absolutely. So remember, everyone, Cardio Nerds is an independent, fellow-founded educational platform with a mission to democratize cardiovascular education. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. You can also claim free CME credit using the link in 
the episode description, and relevant speaker disclosures and amazing show notes are available on the episode show page, so be sure to check it out. If you find the show helpful, please do help others find the show by rating and reviewing this show on your favorite podcast app. And now, friends, it's time to get nerdy. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Air Force Cardio Nerds, where we fly from state to state, learning from inspiring faculty and fellows and celebrate the differences which make cardiology stronger. This incredible program is thanks to a collaboration between the American College of Cardiology, Pennsylvania chapter, the ACC FIT section, and us cardio nerds. Today, we get to fly to Gainesville, Florida, as we host the ACC Florida chapter to learn from the one and only Dr. Kipar. But first, I'd like to welcome my co-hosts. First off, we have Dr. Zarina Sharalaya, Interventional Cardiology Fellow here with me at Cleveland Clinic and my personal go-to when I need help in a cath lab. Dr. Lori Buntum, IC Bound General Fellow at UT Southwestern, and Dr. Ashley Mohajer, Interventional Fellow at Vanderbilt University. Zarina, you've been such an integral part of the Cardi Nerds Narratives Project, and we couldn't be more grateful for your leadership in helping us promote diversity and inclusion in cardiology. Thanks for being such an incredible nerd. Thanks, Amit. I'm so thrilled to have both Lori and Ashley with us for this session. Lori and Ashley, would you please introduce yourselves? Thank you, Serena. Hello, Cardio Nerds. It's a great pleasure to be back to the Cardio Nerds stage today. I'm Lori Bluetooth. I was born in the first half of my life in Cameroon, that's in West Africa, before moving to the United States in Maryland, where I completed college and medical school. And then came down to UT Southwestern for internal medicine residency. And I Loved it so much, so I stayed here for general cardiology. And during my first year of cardiology, I fell in love with the cath lab and everything that we can do in there. And I decided to pursue a career in interventional cardiology. So I'll be staying here at UT Southwestern for that. I'm so excited to be here today. And I'm very excited to be talking to Dr. Park about two important topics. Cardio nerds, thank you. Hey, Cardio Nerds. So excited to be back with this awesome crew today. So my name is Ashley Mohadra. I'm originally from Southern California, and I've essentially taken a tour across the U.S. for my training. After medical school in Southern California, I traded the sun for some lake effect snow for my internal medicine residency at CCF in Cleveland. I then moved south to the swamp to complete my cardiology fellowship at UF in Gainesville. Go Gators! And then I moved here to Nashville, or what sometimes is known as Nash Vegas, apparently, for my interventional fellowship here at Vanderbilt. It was actually during my three years at UF that I had the wonderful opportunity to work with Dr. Key Park, who I have the absolute privilege of introducing as our faculty expert for today's discussion. Dr. Park is a Florida native and completed her bachelor's degree at the University of Florida. She went on to medical school as well as completed a master's in translational science at University of Florida College of Medicine, where she stayed on to complete internal medicine residency, cardiology fellowship, and interventional training. Dr. Park is currently clinical assistant professor of medicine and an interventional cardiologist at University of Florida and the Malcolm Randall V. Medical Center in Gainesville. She has a special clinical research interest in women's cardiovascular health, specifically the Association of Pregnancy Complication and Long-Term Cardiac Risk. Dr. Park started the first dedicated women's heart health clinic at the University of Florida with a focus on postpartum cardiovascular risk modification. She has received numerous awards for her work in the cardioobstetric space and is currently serving as co-chair of the ACC Cardioobstetric Workgroup. On a personal note, Dr. Park was my faculty mentor during general fellowship and really encouraged me to pursue a career in interventional cardiology. I may or may not actually still have a pair of her old lead cath lab glasses that she gave me in general fellowship. 
We have worked on research together. We've taken semi-call and attended resident dinners for aspiring women in cardiology. And we even pretended to calf a fake patient together for her feature piece in the ACC Heart of It series. Uh, in each instance, she was not only an incredible resource, but full of good advice and also incredibly fun to work with. So Dr. Park, welcome to CardioNerds. Thank you all so much. Ashley, I really appreciate that really nice introduction. So thank you all. I remember exactly about a year ago when I was deciding on pursuing interventional cardiology training. And I watched that particular video, The Heart of It, with ACC. And I was just so inspired by your passion, your dedication, and your selflessness. You going from the NICU to the cath lab and pumping, and it was just incredible to see and very inspiring. I knew I was passionate about the cath lab and all, all that we can accomplish in there, but I was a little bit worried about my ability to integrate party obstetrics that I had just got interested into, interventions, as well as family life. Watching that particular video gave me so much hope and courage. So how do you do it? Just tell me how you got to where you are today. Thank you, Lauren. It's really very kind. I had a lot of mixed feelings about making that video to begin with, but you know, I started off my path, loved cardiology, quickly fell in love with procedures. I still to this day just love the cath lab. Occasionally when we don't have fellows and I get to do cases completely by myself, even diagnostics, it just makes me smile. And so I knew my path was with an intervention. And then when my son was born, very preterm during my interventional fellowship year, you know, things took uh, a little bit of a turn. I think so many of us are very type A, very driven, very focused, which is great. But in my case, my experience with my son had me recalibrate things and look at where my priorities were. And, uh, you know, it was kind of a turning point for me. Um, and it also um, sort of started my path in cardioobstetrics. So my path in that field was actually driven by realizing that there was a very strong association between pregnancy complications, such as preterm birth and preeclampsia with long-term cardiovascular disease. And I just found that association to be really fascinating and something that a lot of cardiologists just don't know about. I also had a strong passion for women's cardiovascular disease, having worked with some uh, mentors, including Dr. Peen in microvascular disease. So a couple of years into my faculty position, I wanted to start a clinic to focus on a lot of these topics. And I realized through that, that there really was nobody who was doing cardioobstetrics. And once folks find out that you're doing women's cardiovascular disease, a lot of these patients just end up being referred. And for me, it was really fascinating because it's been a really burgeoning field. There's so much about cardioobstetrics that we don't know. Most of us are not trained in it. And so for me, it's been very exciting to learn more about the field, connect with others, overlap actually with topics in interventional cardiology, funny enough. I just gave a talk on transcatheter interventions in pregnancy, so they do get to overlap sometimes. And so it's really been very exciting for me. I wake up every day just ready to go and look forward to whatever either the lab or clinical practice may bring. So it's a, a little bit of insight into my path to where I am at this point. Dr. Park, knowing someone's risk factors for heart disease is very useful. It helps us reclassify our patients into low, intermediate, or high-risk categories. Women, in addition to being more affected by our traditional risk factors for cardiovascular disease, have risks that are specific to them, such as pregnancy outcomes. Why do you think screening for OBGYN history for cardiovascular risk, you know, why is that important and who should be responsible to assess these risks? and implement prevention strategies as some of these women are sometimes you know, lost in the healthcare system after delivery? Yeah. So I think there's a couple important points and it's a good question on multiple levels. So I think if you think about these women, they're often young, otherwise 
completely healthy looking women. And pregnancy, um, because of the hemodynamic changes and all the sort of metabolic things that we talk about, really is sort of nature's stress test. And I personally think that pregnancy in some women forces clinical manifestations of underlying predisposition to vascular dysfunction. And so these women either have preterm birth, preeclampsia, you know, whatever gestational hypertension that may occur. And then interestingly, a lot of those conditions resolve after pregnancy. But we know from all the data that we've looked at in the last couple of years that even if that condition does not lead to chronic hypertension or chronic diabetes, that those women actually still have elevated cardiovascular disease risk. So if you look at the guidelines between AHA and ACOG, they recommend yearly screening, no matter what complication you had for EMI, for hemoglobin A1C, diabetes screening, blood pressure screening, cholesterol, which to us seems very typical, right? We always screen for those things, but something that you may not be paying attention to in an otherwise healthy 32-year-old woman. And the other thing that you mentioned is what I think are these gaps in care that occur with these women, because a lot of women don't come for regular care at that age unless they go to their OBGYN. So either they're coming in during a pregnancy, they're coming in for a routine women's health screening, and those are all opportunities, you know, screen for these conditions. So I think the burden of looking at these screening opportunities is really spread out amongst so many different areas, which is why it's hard to target. Um, but I've given multitudes of talks at my institution to family medicine, to internal medicine, to cardiology, to OBGYN, trying to really target all of those groups. So I think there's a lot of interdisciplinary work that can be done to try and capture these women and hopefully continue to screen them, catch these risk factors early, and then prevent actual occurrence of cardiovascular disease as these women age. That's great, Dr. Park. So cardioobstetrics has been a big part of your clinical and research interest, and you spoke specifically about how you got interested in this. What advice do you have for trainees interested in the topic, especially those training at programs with little to no expertise in the area? And I ask that particularly for female cardiology fellows who have interest in learning more about these issues like heart disease in women and cardioobstetrics and potentially becoming an expert in the field down the line, making that part of the career, what would you advise for trainees in terms of learning more about these topics that often aren't taught as in-depth as, as other things? In yeah, it's a good question. I, I do think that, um, you know, major societies such as AHA, ACC, the OB, GYN societies are making more of a push to integrate a lot of these topics into the major conferences. I think at the long run, we need to incorporate more of this into our standardized curriculum within cardiology. But in the meantime, I think that if you go to a conference or know of somebody who is working in that area, try and personally reach out to them. You know, that's how I started. You know, to be quite frank, social media actually has helped quite a bit. Hashtag cardioobstetrics has caught on, I think, fairly quickly. And that's connected me to a lot of folks at other specialized centers who do similar type of work. And it's really important for us in this area to connect and run cases by each other because a lot of these conditions we just don't see that often. And so I think as a fellow, if you're interested, you know, just trying to work in that space, you know, if there is someone at your center who has some interest in women's cardiovascular disease, you know, talking to your program director saying, hey, can I rotate with, you know, the OBs for two weeks or something like that. And I can tell you the OBs are very interested in this. And so there's any interest on our side, they take that up pretty quickly. But I think just social media, reaching out to anybody you know in the field and just showing interest, building a regional network, that kind of thing really helps. Yeah, I just have to say, I couldn't agree more. Getting to meet people that are interested in cardio OB and some of the movers and shakers of cardio OB by virtue of the cardio OB series on cardiners, I have to say that 
these people are some of the most passionate about what they're doing. You know, it's like a burning fire. And there's really sort of like a, a mission behind that to take care of young women with cardioobstetric disease. But Dr. Park, I have to say, between being an interventional cardiology fellow, a dad and a cardio nerd, I feel like I'm hanging on by a thread every day. Of course, don't get me wrong. I'm loving every moment and feel privileged to have each of these in my life. But it definitely is busy. You have a thriving career as an interventionalist. You balance time with family and somehow still became such a cardio OB boss. And I think your Twitter handle says it all. Cardio PCI mom. It's very on point and descriptive. How did you do it? And what were the steps involved in becoming a co-chair of a major society working group? You know, I made that handle in two seconds and it stuck with me forever. So it's just hilarious that you say that. But yeah, I think for one, most cardiologists, again, being sort of type A driven people, we're very hard on ourselves. We're human beings. We're not robots. And so you have to have a little bit of grace and understand that we are getting constantly pulled in different directions and that you're not going to be 100% at everything all the time. I know for me, when my son was very little, you know, he still had some health concerns or whatnot. So, you know, my focus was just sort of all in on that. And then as he got older, you know, I sort of shifted things and also had solidified a lot of my advanced coronary skills and then started learning structural and more recently doing CTO. And then at the same time, sort of developing my cardio B clinical practice. So I think just understanding that that's why I really hesitate using the word balance. I think integration is a better word because balance just implies that you always have everything perfectly aligned all the time and it's just not doable. And I think it's also important to keep your family and your friends on the same page about what's going on with you and your career and your life and everything so that they understand. For instance, when I went through my promotion process, I don't think I saw my husband for three months. I mean, I was buried in my office doing this packet and I said, this is just what I need to focus on right now, I, I will get through it and then I'll be back. And then I think I took like a two week vacation after that. And I just said, I'm done. I'm back. I think keeping everybody aligned with the plan helps. You know, my seven-year-old, I can tell you he's getting to the age where he is questioning, like, it's the weekend. I've just all called this weekend. It's like, why are you, as soon as he sees me in the scrubs, he's like, oh, she's going in, you know? And, but, you know, I'm very upfront with him. I tell him why I'm going in, in seven-year-old terms. He's very interested. I said, there's a blockage. Somebody's feeling uncomfortable. I'm going to try and go help them. And I think he's old enough to understand that. And, you know, it's also, I think, making priorities. So certain days, I know that I still have academic work to do, but I choose to come home earlier, have dinner, and then catch up on everything, you know, after my son goes to bed. I had to leave at 5.30 a day because I had to come home and cut my son's hair because he has picture day tomorrow. And he would not go to school tomorrow if I didn't cut his hair. So that was my priority for this afternoon. But, you know, I'll make up the time elsewhere. So I think it's just prioritization and just cutting yourself some slack, to be honest. We're not robots. We're human beings. It's so great to hear you say that, Dr. Park. And it really resonates with me because it's definitely not a balance. You know, and we definitely won't be there and be at our 100% for every domain in our life every single day. And so I think it's so important to come to terms with that, but then also be able to set boundaries and say, look, I'm going to make it to my son's haircut or I'm going to make right. it to my son's swimming class on Sundays, as an example. And I think both Dan and I have, are, are guilty of reviewing angiograms with our kids. And, and there have been times when my four-year-old, you know, he'll say, oh, Papa, you have to go to work. Why do you have to go to work? And, and now yeah. I'm starting to conceptualize, oh, Papa goes to work to help people. And sometimes he says, Papa has to go to work to make money so I can get presents. But we're working on that one too. Not untrue. When my son was two and a half one day I, I had to stop by the lab before I dropped him off at daycare, which was on the same campus. So I drove by and he, this was pre-iPad, pre-TV. 
So like the, the city was like the first like screen he ever saw. So I get it. It's just part of who we are. I guess. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I can definitely relate to all those comments about the kids. And there's like a lot of stages from my son being two when I started internship to now him being seven and understanding a little bit more about what I do. It's definitely a challenge. Going back to our cardio OB, maternal mortality has been steadily increasing in the United States over the last couple of decades. And that is despite all the progress that has been made to improve the OB outcome side of things. And cardiovascular disease account for the majority of these maternal deaths. And this is due to many factors. And as you have pointed out in one of your write-ups, some of the women have generally acquired cardiovascular disease before becoming pregnant. And they eventually become pregnant and they're at higher risk for these cardiovascular outcomes. So what do you think our role is as cardiologists in the fight to reduce maternal mortality? Yeah, so that question could probably be like two hours in itself because it's too broad. I, I think one of the biggest things is just is just education, both on the, the sort of chronic level and also the acute level. So I've heard and I think we've all seen in, you know, the press and literature, these stories of these women coming in who are postpartum, they come in with shortness of breath or, you know, some of those sort of non-specific complaint and they're seen by an ED provider who doesn't even know that they just had a baby, which leads to a whole different differential diagnosis. So I think education is really key. I think access to care. I think we need different models to support women in the peripartum stage and having been a mother myself, you know, when you first have a baby, you know, your whole world is that child and you deprioritize your own health concerns, right? Like you always take your baby to the doctor, to the pediatrician, but your health is very far down on the list. So I think that, you know, things like innovations such as telehealth, I know there's several programs to do a lot of postpartum hypertension follow-up and things like that are really innovative and we need more out-of-the-box solutions to that. You know, insurance coverage postpartum in this country is just suboptimal. There's legislation that's being put through to try and improve that. So there's no real short answer to your question. If I had to pick any of those things as a priority, I would say that it would be education because we can't really start to make true differences in our field in this area unless we all understand that there are significant issues. And despite healthcare being as good in this country as it is, our maternal mortality is terrible. And as you said, cardiovascular disease is absolutely the leading cause of that. And so it's been interesting working in the cardio-obese space because it's great that you become a resource, you know, at your own institution or even regionally for referrals and things. But at the same time, I almost wish that everybody had generalized knowledge about these women because it's just part of what we it's just part of what we see you know i'm thinking back to an individual who's probably pushed the envelope the furthest in terms of women's cardiovascular health nanette wenger who's really modeled all the different ways that cardiologists can get involved and, and improve the lives of women dealing with cardiovascular issues and she i think just said it the best i have to remember this. it was investigate educate advocate legislate just think right. about all the different domains that we can have influence both within our individual microcosms, but then also further beyond, you know, and I look to you, Dr. Park, in terms of everything that you're doing to push the envelope and with regards to investigating and advocating. And we had the pleasure of learning from Dr. Bond and episodes going to come out later in terms of pushing forward legislation and speaking at the White House and moving all of these domains, working in all of these domains, because I think it's, uh, it's, such a, it's so important that not one single act is sufficient. You need big teams and you need to be active in these different domains as part of the team. Yeah. 
you know, speaking about these different domains and thinking about sort of different ways that we can address some of these issues. Dr. Park, where do you where do you see the field of cardioobstetrics going in the next few years? So I think that it needs to become more mainstream in terms of education. Like I said, we're actually working with ACC to develop a dedicated event just on that topic alone, which I think could probably fill a whole week by itself. I think that one of the things that I find really interesting, again, on the education note, is the role of educating subspecialty fellows on various cardio B topics. So for instance, we see arrhythmias in pregnancy all the time. Rates of acute MI in pregnancy are increasing. Women will maybe need support for, you know, peripartum cardiogenic shock. It really sort of spans the whole spectrum in cardiology. So I know I sound like a broken record, but I I think education was really, really key. And then also furthering collaborations with ACOG and SMFM and the maternal fetal medicine societies, because they are also heavily invested, obviously, in maternal health, of course, as well as the, the fetal outcomes. And they're very hungry to work with us and learn more and, and collaborate. So I think fostering the highlighting centers that have cardioobstetrics programs, trying to build networks, development of registries, the HOPE registry being spearheaded out of Kansas, I think is going to be really big because one of the biggest hurdles that we have in this area is just lack of data. And so we just need to understand better how to treat these women and clinical trials in, in pregnant women often just especially the drug therapy interventions, they just don't exist. And realistically, they, they probably never really will for certain types of conditions. So we just need group power in terms of calling data and seeing what that shows us and developing best practices based on experience. And that's, I think, part of what's really key to helping these women. Yeah, thanks, Dr. Park. And there, there's pushing the envelope in national and international level. But practically speaking, we also have to make change within our the four walls of our own hospital. And you've been able to do that by opening up a women's heart center there. So I want to ask a, a quick question. And I'm thinking about people like Dr. Danny Cruciat, who is in the audience right now, graduated from MGH and is passionate about cardio OB. And like her, I think there's going to be a legion of providers who are passionate about this topic and want to create change in their environments around them. What was involved in mobilizing the, the local infrastructure and administrative support to create a heart clinic that would reach across the aisle and collaborate with everyone else involved, like obstetrics and the other subspecialties? Yeah, so it's a good question. I will, full disclosure, I did not have a plan. When I started as faculty, I actually had a half day of reading echo, which to be quite honest, when I decided to open this clinic, I went to my division chair at the time and I said, I want to do this clinic. And she knew my background and research and everything. And she was fully supportive. And when I started the clinic, actually, in Still to this day, you know, unfortunately, us in clinical practice, we just don't get as well compensated for doing that type of work versus doing procedural work. And so, but fortunately, the division was very understanding. And so, you know, at first, I just said, I just want to see women at from care, what kind of things. And the interesting thing about having a, a women's cardiovascular disease clinic is that it's not hard. Like, I did not have to really invest much into PR or anything. You know, women, they're really the drivers of healthcare. And you will have women who come in, they bring their sister, they bring their mother-in-law, they bring like everybody in their like book club. And so it's not hard to get these women to come. And part of it has just been incredibly rewarding, especially with the microvascular disease patients that we've seen, who I've had patients who have had 10, 12 diagnostic angiograms. I mean, it's just insane. And so they're very eager to come see somebody who 
really specializes in that area. And then the cardio B component just came along with that. I happen to be very lucky at our institution. We actually have a maternal fetal medicine faculty member who also trained in internal medicine. You know, it's clearly similar background, similar training. We worked extremely well together. I have a great congenital partner here. So we had all of the elements there. It's just a matter of putting it together. And so for me, it's just putting the pieces together. But Danny and I have talked several times. I actually just got her set up already. She hasn't even started yet. And I already referred her a patient down in Tampa, but she's off to a great start. And it's really exciting. It's a point about networking before. I think that's just sort of how you do it. You just reach out to people and say, how did you do it? And I'm still reaching out to my friends at other centers. My good friend, Kate Lindley at WashU, I'm probably going to sit down with her at some point and say, how did you take your program to the even more next level? Because there's always more that you can do. But I think it's also important to understand what are the strengths of your institution. And having visited other women's centers, they all can vary a little bit. Some are a little bit more research focused. Some are a little bit more into a certain X and S condition than versus others. Some have more cardio B than not. So I think it's important to understand your environment, what's going to work well there as well. Thanks, Dr. Pard, for that insight, particularly into starting a women's heart clinic. It's definitely something that I hopefully aspire to do in my career at some point. And then in terms of the microvascular disease, that's something that Amit and I have been really fortunate to learn more about that in the last year from uh, new additions to our staff, Dr. Ziada and Dr. Raphael. They've just been it's amazing. The whole world of microvascular disease and the tremendous benefit you can bring to your patients. You just address this issue. So one thing we ask uh, a lot of our guests is, did you always know that you were going to be a cardiologist? Yeah, pretty much. So actually, my father has some history of heart disease. And so I think not uncommon where we have some exposure personally. And then when I was going through medical school, cardiovascular physiology was by far the hardest course that we had, but I just fell in love with it and hemodynamics and really knew that I wanted to do cardiology and then focus on that when I was an internal medicine resident. And then when I was in residency, I worked with one of our interventional faculty, who's now my colleague. And at the time, I remember thinking it was like amazing because we would have meetings in the cath lab. And so I just love going down there. And like I, part of my research actually was looking at coronary angiograms for patients who had undergone heart transplant. And I started learning how to read angiograms when I was a second year resident. And for me, just being in an environment, you know, I love doing procedures. Actually, towards the end of my medicine residency, I switched out, I think, half of my war rotations for ICU because I just loved being on call, just being up 24 hours, doing procedures, A-line ventilation whatever you, you could think of, I would get my hands on. And so I knew pretty early I wanted to do cardiology, pretty early that I wanted to do interventional. And unlike, unfortunately, what I've heard from many, many folks, many trainees and, and colleagues, I had an incredibly supportive program. Folks just never mentioned anything about my gender. They just sort of expected me to join their interventional ranks. And there was never any question about, can you have a family? And can you be an interventional cardiologist? And, and that, that still continued to this day with all of my faculty and everyone I work with. So I was incredibly supported in that decision and also in the setting of in my interventional fellowship because I did have a pregnancy complication. But I know that environment is not uniform across everywhere. And unfortunately, women do often face challenges when they are considering interventional. But like I said earlier, I, I think that it's all doable. You just have to sort of have the right expectations, but it definitely can be done and be incredibly fulfilling and worth every minute of it. But it's very nice to hear. I too had a great supportive environment last year when I was contemplating pursuing career in interventional cardiology. I didn't know that I wanted to do it 
when I started fellowship, I was going to be a preventative cardiologist. But then I spent two months in the cath lab and that's where I wanted to be for the rest of my fellowship. But when I was thinking about it, I had a lot of reservation. I, I call myself the rate limiting step to that decision. Everybody else saw my potential, but I had two kids. I was a woman. I was a black woman. I was a woman in a very traditional marriage. And I just saw a lot of roadblocks for myself and I just didn't know how I could make it work. I love how you use that term. You don't use the word like balance because there's no balance, but it's integration. So what advice you would give to medical students, residents who are contemplating a career in this field but are worried about you know, balancing or integrating different parts of their life? Yeah, so it's kind of overlaps a little bit with what I said earlier, but I think that just understanding that certain components, for instance, interventional fellowship. I mean, no matter how you cut it, it's incredibly demanding. And so I think that just understanding that for that year, you're 100%, you know, 150% really just in it. And so understanding that at other times, your family, you know, may become more important. You know, one thing I realized probably just in the last year is that, you know, when we think about our jobs, we always give 110, 120, 150%. And then I thought about it. I said, why, why does it feel like I'm only giving maybe 50% to my family? That's, it's not fair, but I, I think it's best if you look at it that sometimes you're giving 150% to your family and sometimes you're giving 150% to your job. It's not always evenly distributed. And so I think just keeping that in mind, one thing is it's very practical, but, but is incredibly helpful is that in your work or your personal life, delegate things. There's certain things that if you don't need to do it at work, don't do it. At home, we hired a, a cleaning service a, a couple of years ago and it was life-changing. At first I was like, oh, I don't want to pay for the cost of it or whatever. And then you know, I said to myself, it's not that much money. And if I get three hours of my life back every week, it is a hundred percent worth it. Now I know as, as trainees, I'm not saying everybody has like the complete finances to, to do that, but by all means, if that's possible. And also, you know, really just don't be afraid to ask for help with friends, with family. I think sometimes, especially women in our field, are afraid of asking for help or asking for coverage or something because it, it, there's a perception that we be seen as somewhat weak. And I will tell you, I, I feel like the field is becoming much more progressive and that these types of work-life issues are not just something that I hear from women in our field. I hear it a lot from male fellows as well and male faculty. And so I think our field's changing. And I think that part of being a wife, a mother, an interventional cardiologist, we're in a more contemporary time period where it is, again, doable, but just understanding that seek help you don't have to do everything perfectly. So if your house is not 100% tip-top shape, who cares? So just understanding all those limitations. And then just the thing that drives all of this really is just passion. Incredible amounts of passion for what you do, because that's what makes all of the, the challenges really worth it in the end. Wow, Dr. Park, that was incredible. And, you know, I think you're so right that, you know, on one hand, we have to give ourselves a break sometimes, but I, I couldn't agree with you more in getting more help at home, really do anything that we can to spend a little bit of extra time with the kids. And I think it's not necessarily how much time, but it's like the quality of time, you know, like right. you're there, screens are off, you're 100% with them. So we got a cleaning service also, but I, I will say before we did that, I, I bought my son this like toddler rooms <laughs> and mops. So I thought maybe I could kill two birds with one stone, but it definitely backfired. So I, I wouldn't recommend that card units out there. 
You didn't take you didn't take it up, like just go after it. <laughs> no, now I just have to get up the brooms and mops for the floor. That's awesome. Thanks, Dr. Park. That's all very great advice. And one thing I did want to ask you also, JAMA had released an article earlier this year looking at the timeline of childbearing among physicians as compared to non-physicians, basically indicating that physicians delay childbearing, particularly those in subspecialty fields. So what's your take on this and what would you like to see change to facilitate more support with all of this? Yeah, so I think, you know, if you look at the intersection of average childbearing age with the timeline of our training, it's exactly like this. And I think I've given a talk where I made some kind of figure of of that. And I think maybe sort of in essence, what you're asking in a way is, you know, this age old question of like, when is a good time? Like, you get that question a lot. And I've heard so many different variations of how to answer that. And I think that it's so individualized. I think that nowadays our decisions about when to have children are so different than they used to be. And, you know, people should make that decision when it's appropriate for them. And there's all kinds of things to take advantage of. You know, there's egg harvesting, but from a support standpoint, as I mentioned, in terms of the field progressing, I think that mentality around training and leave needs to change. We do not have uniform parental leave policies in this country. It's all institutionally dependent. People rely on FMLA. There's unpaid leave. It's completely all over the place. And particularly, it comes up in general training, but it gets even trickier when you think about subspecialty training because um, you can't take that much leave in a program that's a year or two. So I know I personally faced that when I was supposed to get my pregnancy complications. I think that there needs to be more flexibility in terms of training. And again, not something that just affects mothers. It affects paternity leave too. And and so I think trainees are more in tune to this. I find that more and more trainees of both genders are looking for this. And we're working actually a little bit up on some survey data regarding these topics. But I, I think training needs to be more fluid and more accommodating in terms of allowing for that intersect to occur. But like you said, it needs to be supported. I think we're getting there. I think it was a year or two they finally started requiring via ACGME that every institution have dedicated lactation rooms. I remember when I was pregnant, after I had my son, they literally had just opened the lactation room. I was so thrilled that I didn't have to hide in the bathroom or something somewhere to try and, and uh, pump and things. And so it's, uh, it's getting there, but I, I think more institutional support, societal support really can help with that. I don't know if I exactly answered your question, but hopefully address some component of it. That was perfect. Thanks. Actually, I've got one question from the audience. This is from Dr. Gurleen Kaur. Gurleen is well-known to Cardiners. She is a Cardiner. She has just started her residency at the Brigham and as an intern, she's entertaining a career in interventional cardiology, also interested in prevention, also interested in women's cardiovascular health. So it fits right into this group here. So Gurleen asked, Dr. Park, you mentioned always enjoying doing procedures which drew you to interventional cardiology early on in your career. Were you someone who was always great at doing procedures and skilled with them, with working with your hands? If not, what were some challenges you faced early on in interventional training and how have you evolved since then? So I would say having trained other fellows, I've had fellows who are not so great with their hands. I've had some who seem like they were savants, like they were like came out of the room as an interventional cardiologist. It's like unbelievable. But yeah, I personally, I, I think I was sort of average. I remember when I got hired for my faculty position, you know, I stayed at the same institution and approached about staying on as faculty, I think the beginning of my third year. And I said, what are these people doing? They haven't even, I've never even like really done an intervention with them. What are they, why are they hiring me? Because they don't really know what I can do yet. But I, I would say that my skill set was 
I think fairly average technical wise, but I think that in the lab, I think a lot of what the challenge is, is this very thing that we talk about in terms of imposter syndrome, this feeling where you're like, oh my God, someone's going to find out that I'm really not good at this. And you're always struggling with that. And especially in interventional cardiology, when you're in such a male dominated field, I think we always feel a little bit like, oh, they're looking at you like, this is a woman, does she know what she's doing? And I know I felt a little bit of that. And even though I work at an amazing facility and Ashley knows this, amazing people who I'm sure have never actually thought this about me, but you think about it for yourself. And so, you know, the biggest thing that I found in order to get over that feeling is just, like I said, 100% every case I could get my hands on. Like I, I actually started my fellowship a little bit early because I was a research fellow. And so I think the last six weeks so it'd be like May to June before the new fellows started in July, there was actually no no cath fellow, junior cath fellow. So I actually started early, got my hands in, you know, kind of at a really good time. And then, you know, I probably told Ashley this before, but I knew I wanted to do interventional because every time I would go off my cath rotation, I would go to cath ritual and I would have to come back to get my fix of something. So I'd be like consults and come down and see what's going on. And even now, my days when I'm not cathing, I always go in there and I look at what's going on. I think the best way to come back a lot of that. And just to improve your skill set at anything, it's not just interventional, it's clinical practice, seeing different types of patients, whatever it is, is really just to get your hands in there. You can't get yourself better unless you're in there and you're making mistakes and you're learning from those mistakes. And that it's really just a matter of time and number of procedures. And everybody, there are very, like a joke, but there are very few people who just know how to do what we do. It's all just a matter of numbers and experience. Yeah. yeah I think that skill, like most things improves with practice. And earlier you talked about having a passion for it and you apply yourself and that's and all very important. I personally think some of the hardest things about the cath lab is the decision-making because things are yes. straightforward and you can refine your skills, but but you really have to just do the do right by your patients and, and work with the team to get everyone's opinion and, and have that foresight. But just want to circle back. We're talking about savants. If anyone's worked with Girlene, they know that she is quite the savant. And I've more than a few occasions introduced her as a cardiology fellow because of the incredible work she's been doing. <laughs> Forget that she's an intern. So Girlene, <laughs> I know you're here right now. You should definitely continue to think about intervention. She's like a cardiology. She's like a Mensa. Right? There you go. Exactly. Girlene, just another plug for you to do interventional cardiology. But also just circling back to that discussion. First of all, thank you for sharing that. I think I know myself, I can very much identify with the conversation about imposter syndrome and feel like people are watching you and just really thinking back to two times that I became interested in cardiology and intervention and finding myself drifting back to the cath lab, as you mentioned, Dr. Park. So thinking about things that make us happy, what makes your heart flutter about being a woman in cardiology? It's a good question. I think all the things I talked about in terms of my very diverse clinical practice, but I think one of the things that gets me most excited is doing things like this, where we talk about things for instance, like imposter syndrome, that I think is often difficult to discuss. But in the broader picture is trying to recruit more women into our field. We all know the rates of women in cardiology in general is like horrifically low. In interventional cardiology, it is just abysmal. And I've encountered residents who were very well thought of. We all thought they were going to apply for fellowship and then they never interview or applying. So, you know, what happened? Did something happen? And, and they're like, oh, we just didn't think we could do it or work life or somebody said that it wasn't, it couldn't work or something. And I completely respect all those decisions. I just, I, I want women trainees to 
you know, have exposure to folks who, who are doing it and have insight. And so I think one of my biggest passions and something that I'm really proud of is starting our women in cardiology section for the state of Florida, along with my good friend, and so Rockus at Miami, because when Ashley, you've been to some of those events, I mean, they're very well attended. Women are so eager to connect with each other. They're looking for role models and mentors and sponsors. And so it's, it, that's really one of the things that I'm very, very passionate about. And I see a lot of momentum in that area too. So it's very exciting. And especially being able to connect with all three of you today, it's just the smile is going to stay on my face for like hours after this, because just being able to hang out with young, exciting female trainees going into interventional is just amazing and really just makes me so happy. Wow. This is a, such an incredible session. And this whole series has been so awesome. But Dr. Park, I can't thank you enough. You know, CardioNerds itself is nothing without the people that make it. So Serena, Laurie, and Ashley, thank you for being here, being a part of the community and, and always contributing and really elevating this discussion. But Dr. Park, I just don't have enough words to thank you, not just for this session, but people don't know how much support and encouragement you've provided for us in our journey. I remember when I watched that at the heart of it, via YouTube video about you and, and your, your story. And I was just so touched. I was like, oh my gosh, like I just, I want to get to know this person. It was so inspiring. And I remember it was actually shortly after I watched that we connected and, and the words of advice that you had for the broader narratives and cardiology series, we really took to heart and it, it's transformed some of the ways that we've designed it. And so thank you for being such a key advisor for that. And people don't realize that the whole Cardiners Cardio Obstetric series really came out of seeing your passion for this field and the encouragement you gave for, for us to take that on. So again, can't thank you enough for everything you've done for us for this session. We're excited to just continue taking inspiration and teaching and hopefully more of your time down the road. Absolutely. Thank you all. It's been great working with everybody and uh, really look forward to your continued uh, work with all of this. So thanks. Thanks, Dr. Park. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hello, everybody. My name is David Perloff. I'm the president of the Florida chapter of the American College of Cardiology. It's nice to see everyone. I have been asked to give a governor's update on diversity and inclusion that has occurred in our chapter. So I am very proud of the strides we've made in Florida from this standpoint and many others. Just to give you a background, we have an annual meeting every year in Orlando. It's a family affair. We get to go to Disney and have a lot of family activities, and it's, a, it's an awful lot of fun. Any of you are welcome to come, and we would love to have you. During our past two annual meetings, these, by the way, are in August, we have reserved a spot for a diversity and inclusion speaker. At our last meeting in 2021, which fortunately was in person, over 80% of our speakers were women. We have a very strong WIC section. The uh, events, some of which I'm going to talk about, attract a large audience of women in the chapter. We added a meeting intern spot this last year for a high school student who's interested in cardiology and even created a resident poster session to keep talent in Florida and then encouraged women FITs to reach out to their IM colleagues so that they could participate. Finally, we have a, an annual meeting, a separate annual meeting that occurs in January every year that is fully devoted to three sections. These are the women in cardiology, our CV team, and fellows in training. So this is a really great opportunity for folks to get together 
in these groups. There are plenary sessions that all attend, and then there are individual breakouts for each group. This has been a very successful and exciting meeting. We've made some changes to it, which I am very proud about. This was historically always done also in Orlando as a central place in Florida. But given the restraints on travel, especially for some of our CV team members and fellows, we decided to make this a traveling meeting. So coming in January, this January 2022, the meeting is going to be held in North Miami at the Turnberry Resort. And then in following years, it will travel to Tampa, Florida, and up into Jacksonville, giving all different areas of the state the opportunity to interact with their colleagues and participate in this meeting. So I would like to say, I think we've been a leader in the state of Florida in many things, and specifically in diversity and inclusion. I'm very proud of what our chapter has done. We find this to be outstanding and very, very important work, and we'll continue to hopefully be a leader into the future. Thank you very much. Dan uh, sends his regards. He wishes he could be here, but I think he's going to join live to watch for a little bit, but then he's going to go play hockey with his kids. So we gave him a pass. Work-life integration. I'm all about it. (laughs) Exactly. He's practicing it in real life. (laughs) Good for him.